and also with you. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dan. Would you guys bow in prayer with me this morning as we begin? Lord, thank you so much for the gift of gathering together. As Scott mentioned, in, in places like Tajikistan, they don't have the freedom to assemble, to worship together in the same way. It is uh, difficult because the government and the people around them do not honor or do not even appreciate the fact that they have the right to worship the one true God. And we do. We have that gift. Thank you, Lord, that we are gathered in this body and, and we are gathered as your church across this nation uh, openly, without fear, and we have the opportunity to worship in your presence and learn from you. Be with us this morning, please. Teach us from your word. Let your Holy Spirit convict, encourage, challenge uh, and ultimately bring us further up into Jesus Christ. By his name and for his glory, we ask. Amen. So we are in week two of our study of the book of Galatians, finishing up our vision series with the teaching portion where we're essentially going to demonstrate uh, how we as a body want to teach the word to one another by going primarily through uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and so we're, we're in our, um, in a, sorry, I said week two, I meant chapter two. Uh, we're actually in week three. Um, Chris started out giving us the introduction and laying out the foundation of um, how Paul is showcasing that there is only one true gospel and that the Galatians have been veering off into error um, into uh, risking losing the one true, the, the fact that the gospel 
Um, he defends his apostolic ministry by saying that the gospel came to him not from men, but from God himself, that it was the gospel of God, as he entitled the sermon. And so this week, we pick up from that theme because it's, it's part of the same, essentially, forensic argument that Paul is making. It's just layered. So he started with the message that the gospel didn't come from man, it came from God, as we saw last week, that it it wasn't related to his Jewish heritage, the old life and the zeal with which he pursued the law. It wasn't from the time that he spent with the other, the other apostles. It wasn't from the other Christians who he met during that time, but instead it was from a direct revelation from Christ, the message of the gospel that came to him directly from him. Now he moves forward through time, through the process of his ministry and continues to defend himself. But now he's changing gears where before he specifically said, this came from God. It depends nothing on me. the true gospel. And it is, um, and I am a true apostle because it has been ratified by other men. It has been agreed upon. There is the evidence of other faithful men. And so that's the reason for the title this morning, that it is still the gospel of God, but it is held fast by the faithful over time. So we see this in a few different ways. Uh, the first thing I want to look at this morning is that the, the faithful are there in part to test the truth of any gospel message. The faithful test the truth of the gospel message. We see that from the way Paul says that after 14 years, he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and he takes Titus along with him. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul goes and presents himself to the other apostles who were there in Jerusalem. Before, remember, he said he only met with a couple of them. He didn't meet with any of them and didn't spend any significant amount of time with them. This time, he goes up with the specific purpose of telling them what he has been doing and laying out in detail the message of the gospel that he has been presenting to them. And Scott, last week, used some of the different scriptures that detail what Paul is explaining as his gospel. I want to use one of them, and then I want to use one that he didn't reference last week. First is in Romans chapter 5. He says in verses 6 through 10, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the essence of the gospel that Paul lays out in front of the apostles. He shows them what he has been teaching, the message that, that God has answered the need that each one of us has, that our sin 
and the penalty of it has been paid for once for all by the sacrifice of God the Son, Christ Jesus. And that that salvation, that rescue from the wrath of God and the rejoining into the, the union of his family to be saved by Christ's death and by his life has been fully accomplished through that. What is required is faith in him and following him with our lives. That's the message that he gives. Now, it is, it's interesting that given what we talked about, all that we talked about last week, the, the second half of chapter 1, where Paul details the fact that his gospel did not come from men. This was all about the direct revelation from God. Now he turns around and submits, in a way, to the, to the other apostles. That is a, do you like this or don't like this? This is the gospel. God told me so. This is what I'm going to do. But no, he comes and presents himself to them. Why? Because he knows. He knows them. He knows that they were the original followers, that they were the ones who Jesus called. They walked with him. He presented the message to them over the course of three years, and they have held on to it. And so he recognizes the fact that, as he says, I I didn't want to end up laboring in vain. I didn't want to be running in vain. Paul frequently uses that running language to talk about the the course of the Christian life and the mission of the Christian life in the spread of the gospel. So he doesn't want his efforts to evangelize people to be done in vain because maybe he missed something, maybe he forgot something. There's a host of different reasons why. But he checks himself against what he considers trusted sources. These men know what the true gospel is, and so he lays it out with them just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And guess what? Not a problem. It was. He says that when they heard it, they recognized, in verses 7 through 10, that they heard it, they recognized that grace had been given to him specifically to spread the message to the Gentiles, the same way that they had been given the the same message, that it was in fact the same message. And they had been given it to spread to the circumcised, those who were Jews already. And so they see it, they recognize it, and they, they, it says, extend the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship, we're not sure exactly what it means, but it sounds kind of formal, doesn't it? What we know for sure We don't know if it was some sort of uh, formal ceremony or whether it was just, you know, a tradition that they held out of shaking hands or of clasping hands or putting your hand on somebody's shoulder. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but we know that it it was essentially a ratification. It was a, a way of declaring, yes, we're one. We have no issues with you. We recognize that we are partners in the gospel. We recognize that Paul is, in fact, an apostle. They were stamping him with the same authority that they held so that everybody else would know. And it is, it is worthwhile in one sense that they did this, that, that Paul goes and has this happen because, because of everything that had, been, had happened previously. I mean, remember, when Paul was first, when Paul was first converted, he went and tried to hang out with other Christians, and they were terrified of him. 
because he had been an enemy. He had been a persecutor. They didn't know if he was coming, if he was coming to arrest them. They didn't know if he was coming in to, to sneak in and figure out who was who and who, who was becoming a follower of the way of Jesus so that they could be arrested or somehow called before the Sanhedrin later. They didn't know any of that. But, but this has a way of essentially saying, wherever you go, to any, to any church that you go, recognize we're with you. We're one in this. And who better than them to do that? As I said, they walked with, the, they walked with Jesus for three years. But not only that, think about, for instance, one of the people who gets mentioned the most, Peter. If anybody's going to recognize the gospel message, wouldn't it be Peter? Mr. I am never in doubt, no matter what I say, I will say the first thing that comes into my mind. So one moment he is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Brilliant. The next moment Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem and die. He goes, no, 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 bad idea. Uh, that's, that's Peter. He's also the same guy who after Jesus' arrest, follower of Jesus Christ, after being told he was going to deny his own master, by his master, being warned of that. He goes in, he goes to where the trial is being held, and then three times before the morning rooster crows, he denies him. And after all of that, Jesus forgives him. And at the close of the Gospels, as they are called together by the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, Jesus comes to them and he pulls Peter, he pulls Peter to the side and asks him three times. Do you love me? Yes. And then tells him to tend, tend the flock in three different ways. In three different ways, he had denied him. In three different ways, he is forgiven and charged with ministry of the gospel. He is forgiven, except he gets it. And he recognizes that Paul has received it too. So there is no question when he says, you're not running in vain. We are, we are the same. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship. For us, I think that's very important because as, as Scott alluded to last week, th this is a time where gospels creep up all the time, where people want to tell us other things that, that we need to do, whether it's you know, completely apart from Christ or whether it mixes in the true gospel with other things. It is natural for us as in our sinful nature anyway, to grab on to other things that are not Christ. And so it's very important for us to remember that even, even Paul here went and checked himself. And we can go to trusted sources. We can go to people we know who, are, who have walked in and lived out the gospel and who also know how to turn us to scripture, to search together, to sift through. So if somebody brings a new idea to you before you just throw it into play, then go to other people, test it out, figure out, am, am I off base here? Is this, is this weird? Is somebody giving me a load of bunk? Or is this, is this for real? Is this something that we need to grab onto, to take hold of and to use? And so we can use each other. We can use those trusted people. But secondly, we not only see that, that the faithful do in fact test messengers of the gospel and the message that they bring, we see that, of course, they're not the only ones who are out there. It's not just the faithful. We see that the false are also out there, and the false will always attempt to add to the true gospel message. So in verses 3 through 5, he points out there's a reason why 
he needed to do this. So even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So there are not just, there are not just those who are faithful messengers of the gospel, there are false messengers who are out there. Paul calls them false brothers, false brothers. And we don't know for sure the exact circumstances, and we don't know for sure, were they, were they actual people who were unrepentant and who were disguising themselves, trying to convince people of, of a false gospel, or were they well-intentioned followers of Jesus who were not trying to, but were mixing in other doctrines? We don't know for sure. We just know he calls them false brothers. And I think the reason why he calls them false brothers without telling us what he knows for sure, besides the fact that he cannot know their hearts, is because as he said in chapter one, if anybody comes to you with another gospel, I don't care whether it's me, another apostle, an angel, it doesn't matter who it is. If they come with another gospel, let them be anathema, accursed, condemned as though being set aside for destruction in hell. That is, that is the message of anathema. And so he calls them here false brothers because without knowing anything else, they are. If the message is, is untrue, then they are to be anathema. So he's following through on what he's teaching as well as telling them. Obviously, in the last chapter, we got an illusion when Paul talks about how he wasn't, he contrasted the gospel with his old life, his old zeal for the Jewish law. But he doesn't talk about it explicitly. Here, we start to get the first idea because he tells us about Titus. Titus, he says, wasn't required to be circumcised. For any, for any Jewish listener, that's an automatic light bulb moment. There's an automatic trigger. You go, circumcised. Oh, okay. Now I know what we're talking about. We're talking about the Jewish law. That's because circumcision is the entrance to the Jewish law and the Jewish covenant community, to the Jewish way of worship that had been established from the time of Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. God makes his covenant with Abraham and has him circumcise himself. He's 99 years old when that happens. Further on in Exodus chapter 4, when God calls Moses into ministry to lead the people out of bondage um, in slavery from, to Egypt, he has Moses circumcise his son because he hadn't been, that hadn't happened yet. And then it's, it's codified in Leviticus chapter 12 as part of the, the standard for the Jewish law where every male eight days old, so eight days from birth, they are to be circumcised as part of their signification that they are a Jew. They are a follower of the Jewish law. So we recognize that, that is, that's part of the heresy that's being brought in, is that they, these people, what we now call Judaizers, were coming in and, and saying that it's good that you're following Jesus. It's good that you believe Jesus is the Messiah and that he has rescued you. However, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not enough. You need to follow the Jewish law to be saved. 
Jesus is good. Jesus plus is right. That is where the problem lies. He recognizes that this is false. And he says, he refers to it as, they are false brothers who came in to spy out our liberty. I mean, just think of the connotation there. Like, to spy out our liberty, that tells you they are no friend, right? I mean, have you, have you ever seen a single spy movie, a, read a spy novel, anything like that? Have you, have you ever seen one, a situation like that where a person is going in to spy on another country, on another company, on something, and the people that he goes to should think that he's a friend? No. That's, that's not what a spy does. A spy's purpose is to go in someplace else under the guise of friendship, under the guise of belonging, uh, you know, he, he hides in plain sight, and then his goal is to undermine or weaken the position of that nation, of that company, whatever, by either stealing secrets, by, um, by minimizing their effectiveness, by sowing dissension amidst the, uh, uh, among people of influence. There's a host of different ways that it can be done. But it's never, like, it's never to the benefit of the people that he goes to. So it's clear that he is saying that these people who are coming in are no friends of yours. Instead, they are coming in to spy out your liberty. Liberty, freedom from, right? That's why he says they didn't require Titus to get circumcised. He wasn't made to do it. They, they recognized that there was freedom, that they were no, no longer under the Jewish law because Jesus had, in fact, fulfilled the Jewish law. And in so doing, it was no longer required to hold on to. So they, they recognized that he was no longer under it. But these people are convinced, and they're going to keep coming and trying to convince you, is essentially what Paul is saying. They are coming to try and convince you. This is obviously prior to even what Paul is telling. He's giving them history. He's giving them a history that has already happened. So this was going on in the past, and he's saying, it's been going on among you, and now you're starting to buy into it. This isn't anything new. It's a, it's a long-term progression. It's a long-term, ongoing thing that's going to happen. And we can recognize that it's going to keep happening. There are going to continue to be people who want to smuggle in other things to the message of Christ. It could be that they want a whole other, they want a whole other religious worldview. Totally swear. But you also need to say, no, Jesus is good the same way the Judaizers were. But you also need a political agenda. You also need a social agenda. You also need personal good works. There's a host of different ways that it can play out. And to all of it, Paul would say, they're just spies looking to steal away your liberty, to undermine what has been given to you, and they should be accursed. And thirdly, we know that the faithful test the gospel message. We know that there are the false who try to add to the gospel message. And then the third is kind of an, appli is kind of an application point, that the faithful not only test the gospel message of somebody coming in and preaching it, but we test each other with the message of the gospel. I thought this was interesting that right in the middle, there's this little parentheses that he gives. So if you're, if you're looking at Galatians 2, look at verse 6. It says, 
and those who seemed to be influential. So he says he, he went to the apostles. He presented himself to the apostles. And those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, for God no, shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He has that little, that little thing, what it seemed like they were, I don't care. I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me because God doesn't show any partiality. What does that mean? Well, God doesn't show any distinction to them in, in their belonging to God. God doesn't look at Peter and go, oh, he's mine. He doesn't look at Paul and then look at Paul and go, yeah, okay, I'll take him. No, there is no difference to him between the two. He shows no partiality. And there's also an implied, that there's a couple of things implied through that. One, he's using, he is using the relationship with the apostles to help justify his case, right? That he is, in fact, a true apostle, and he's holding on to the true gospel. But it also serves as a check on any, any of the Galatians, any of those in the Galatian churches, going, oh, well, Peter listened to him, so, okay. We know Peter. We've heard about Peter. Peter's famous. Yeah, if, if Peter says he's good, he's good. That's not the way it works. It's kind of what Paul's saying. It, it doesn't matter whether they look more influential. It doesn't matter whether they look like they have more authority or, or have more power. God makes no distinction in that regard. So what does God distinguish based on? God distinguishes based on the message. That's... The, the fact is, Peter and James and John and the other apostles, they have the authority to sort of accept or reject because they have held faithful to the true message. And they are, judge, you know, they are judging the true message. But if they weren't faithful, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. They're, whether they stand or fall, ultimately, they stand or fall based on how they receive and live out the message of Christ Jesus. And we can see next week where Paul talks about how when Peter was not living according to the message, how Paul had no problem calling him out. He had no qualms about pointing out where he was falling short, where he was moving away from the true message of the gospel and calling him to repent. Interesting is at the very end in verses 9 and 10, about this, that we test each other by the gospel message um, by seeing that not only do we use the words, not only can we espouse and can we articulate the points of what saves us, but that we recognize the whole picture of how God intends to save us and how we are supposed to not just say it, but how we are supposed to live it out in life. So in verses 9 and 10, it says they, they had added nothing to him, right? And they receive him. They receive him with the right hand of fellowship. Only with one thing. They only ask in verse 10 to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to already do. It's, a, it's an odd little caveat to throw in there, especially considering, considering the fact that up until now, Paul has been beating on the Judaizers for trying to add things to the gospel message. So why throw in remember the poor on the, on the backside of that? Isn't that adding things to the gospel message? It, it's not, 
But I think we can. This is something that we can wrestle with about how do we, how do we balance that fine line of, okay, we are not saying that anything is required beyond Christ, beyond faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us. And at the same time, recognizing that there's a host of good works that we are called to do, that we are supposed to live, to live out. And, and we still need to hold on to these things. So how do we balance those two? They, had, they seemingly had no problem asking, asking Paul to remember the poor. They didn't think of any conflict with the gospel itself. And Paul doesn't either, because he doesn't call it out. So he understands that there is a distinction being made. And I think the reason is because they are not saying that in order for Paul to be a Christian, for, or for Titus, or for any other person who receives the message of Christ, they are not saying that any of these are bound up in how we are justified before him. We are not justified by works of the law. It is by faith alone. But our faith doesn't exist alone. It doesn't remain alone. So it's by, another way of saying it might be, it is by faith alone that we are saved, but not faith only that we live by. Or another way of saying it is that works are not the source of our redemption, but works are the course, as in the pathway, of those who have already been redeemed. If that's still confusing, because I know it's hard, I, I thought of an illustration um, that I think somebody, I think it was given to me, but I can't remember by who. So just understand, I didn't come up with it originally. If I'm an amputee, right, I had my leg cut off at the knee, and I'm living life as a cripple, and one of you has, has funds, you are wealthy, you are connected, and you have the opportunity to get me top of the line, state of the art, perfect in every way, prosthetic leg. I mean, it would change my life, right? That would change my life. So to compare it to the true gospel, it would be saying, all right, I am going to give you, I'm going to give you this leg. All you have to do is take it. And so if I accept the leg, then you tell me, okay, now you've been given this brand new, you've been given this brand new leg. It has radically changed your life. So go walk, go learn how to live in it. Go learn how to use it. Go learn how to make the most of it. Go learn how to make the most of the new life that you have been given. That's the full picture of the gospel, that we are transformed by faith in Christ. There are works that come after that that's part of living it out, but it's not part of what saves us. The other option would be instead, if you go, okay, here's the deal. You're crippled. I can save you. But in order to do that, I will, I will get you a brand new, state-of-the-art, perfect in every way, prosthetic leg. First, you need to walk. I mean, you get the difference now, right? That, I, I hope that stands out. That on the one hand, it's saying, you have to earn this. And to be honest, in, in a certain way, in that kind of situation, I think just as much as what Paul will be saying throughout the rest of the, the book is, they're saying you have to earn this, and there is no way you can. They're giving you an impossible task. You want to go that way, you are doomed. But if you go to the true gospel, you will be saved. You will be rescued. And you have nothing to fear from them. 
That's the beauty of the gospel that God has given to us. And so this morning, as we start to, as we start to move more into other types of worship than just the teaching of the word, I want to close with a few things and just say, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you believe entirely. But I encourage you, search your own hearts, search your own lives, and see, have you been smuggling in other things to your understanding of how you relate to and how you measure up to God's standards? Are you trying to measure up to God's standards by anything beyond Christ himself? Are you, are you trying to do it through good works? Are you trying to do it through how you live in this church? Are you trying to do it through your job? There's a host of other ways. If you are, just remember that it's very clear from the teachings of Scripture, there's no way to do that. There's no way back from that. You can't earn your way out of it. I mean, if, if you don't believe that, if you struggle to believe that, then I would ask you, well, I'll even do it this way. How many of you commute to work on a regular basis? Just a quick show of hands. Anybody commute to work? Okay. Those of you who commute to work, how many times in the last month did you essentially demean someone else's humanity in, the, in traffic in the way you responded to them? Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I'm not going to say who. I think I heard somebody say yesterday. Um, yeah, so I mean, st- in that time frame, how do, you, how do you make up for that? You have no connection with the other person. You have no way of even apologizing to them. How, before a holy God and before the humanity around us, do you ever make up for what way? I'd love to talk to you about it. I really would, because I haven't found anything. I have one hope, and that is that Christ has paid the debt for me, because I can't pay it on my own. And he did, and he does it freely. And he invites any one of us to come and receive that. If you have, enjoy it, thrill in it, never give it up. If you have received Christ, hold fast to him above everything else. Be careful of those who who want to tell you another way to live with him. And then don't forget that, that that means you still get to live in a new way. You still get to walk it out. This morning, we're going to transition into a time of, of worship that we do every week with the Lord's Supper. And I invite the, the worship team to come up at this time. Um, we're going to get to live out a picture of receiving Christ. By taking the elements, the bread and the juice, we symbolize the fact that the debt has been paid for us. And so this morning, if, if you have nothing to fear, come up to the tables in the front or the table in the back. There's juice, there's wine. You can take whichever one you want uh, and the bread. And enjoy taking those and remembering the fact, feeding on the fact that Jesus has paid for the entirety of your debt. You'll never have to be afraid again. If you haven't, we just ask that you watch, that you ask questions, that you talk to other people about it. 
It's not personal. It's, it's not that we dislike you by any means. It's simply put that it's a solemn affair. God says he gave his only son to die on your behalf. And it would be extremely, extremely rude and cruel to make light of that when you haven't experienced, when you haven't experienced that sacrifice for yourself. Um, but we want you to watch. We want you to ask questions. We want you to come in and, and follow Christ so that you can take part in that. So at this time, the team's going to play a song to help us prepare our hearts.